First Thessalonians chapter three, verses one through five. We're going to go ahead and read just so that you uh, feel this all the way to the end of the chapter, but we're going to be focusing in on verses one through five here in this passage. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for, the sake, for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself And our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. This passage is, again, an extension from last week where the sermon uh, was a very heartfelt. It's very heartfelt. It's from my heart as a pastor, and it's hard not to read this passage. And, and really, it's hard not to read the book of 1 Thessalonians and not just absolutely superimpose it onto sovereign grace and say that that's who you are. Uh, because this is a, for the Thessalonican church is a small, quiet church that just kind of wants to be left alone to worship in peace and has around it a uh, world that seems apathetic uh, and seems not to care and a government that just wants them quiet and out of the way. So that's kind of what we have here. And it's hard not to read this and go, I feel the same way about you guys that Paul feels about the Thessalonians. Um, it's hard not to read this and just uh, kind of blanket apply it to sovereign grace. And I, it's true. This, these words that you that I read in this book uh, feel like I could have written them myself if I were in another state and thinking about you all. So we come to this part in chapter 3 where Paul is responding And telling them kind of what happened. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 17. So just, I want you to stick your finger in here and go back to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, because of what he said that we looked at last week, When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So turn back to chapter 17 of Acts in verse 16, and we're going to see what happened in Athens. So in Athens, Paul has uh, left Thessalonica, and he's gone to Berea. And if you remember, the Bereans 
responded to Paul well. They took what he said and they tested it by scripture and they had faith and there was response, but they reasoned with him. He went to the synagogue in Berea and the Jews that were there found the Lord and, and they responded well to him and they they would have him come and speak and they'd think about it and they'd go away and they'd ponder among themselves and they'd come back with questions and they really investigated Christianity with an eye uh, to understand the truth. And when they did that, they found Jesus Christ. And so there was this exciting ministry in Berea, but that's not what compelled Paul to send people back to Thessalonica. It wasn't the receipt of the gospel, the positive responses he got in Berea that made him go, I need to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. But it was Athens. We, we, we could bear it no longer. We had to get news to you. We had to come back to exhort you to strengthen your faith. We had to do this. Why? What happened in Athens drove him to it. So let's read. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 17 and following. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he feels a burden. This this concept of spirit being provoked within him is like you can't hold back. You can't hold back. It's, it's that, that term that Jeremiah uses where he says, there was fire in my bones when I tried to keep silent. I tried to keep it to myself and there was fire inside me. I couldn't hold it back. And he has to speak. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I'm there often. And there often when I go places. And, and my wife and I are there often when we talk to people who go to other, uh, other worship centers, other places and, and, and they talk about what's going on, and we feel this, oh, we have to speak. We can't hold it back. And, and we try to be very polite. And it doesn't always work. But Paul feels that burning, that sensation where he walks into a room. And you know, you've been there where you walk into a room, and you just, everything starts to burn. And there's this, I don't know why, I'm starting to sweat. Like there's this weird, like I don't know, my eyes get hot. Like just stuff starts going weird. And you get, you get this righteous anger. And you know it's righteous anger because you can literally point to passages of Scripture and go here, 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 and here, and here, and all of this is wrong. And you feel the need to say something. And Paul feels that burning. He's, he's in a city full of idols. Remember, Thessalonica, they worshipped idols before Christ. Like the type that you put on your bedstand. The little types of little figures that you had in the rooms. These were the type of people who would sit at the table and they had an idol to the food that they were uh, being served. They had an idol to the the uh, oven that they cooked on. They had an idol to the, the God of the morning, the God of the evening. They had an idol to the trees. All these things. They had all these things. That's what they were dealing with. And so he, he sees the same thing in Athens and it burns within him. So he goes to the synagogue there in verse 17 and he, he reasons with the Jews and the devout persons and he goes to the marketplace every day. He goes to the marketplace and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he's going to where people are. He goes to the synagogue where all the religious, devout Jews are who are ignoring the idolatry of the city. And he goes to the marketplace where all the normal people are who are embracing the idolatry of the city. So he goes to both places. And while he's There, verse 18, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Epicureans being those who uh, are basically hedonists and Stoics being those who deny themselves everything. So you've got ascetics, people who deny themselves things, and you've got Epicureans who allow themselves everything. You've got both groups represented there. Both wicked philosophies represented there. Both 
man-centered philosophies represented there. So he's arguing with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. I think that's really funny. Foreign, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why not talk to him? Right? Like, but it's this weird, they're starting to talk about him. Paul is making uh, inroads. I imagine that he's going to the marketplace and having, you know, what we would call the equivalent of like having coffee with strangers. And he's having discussions with them. And if somebody is there, there's a, there's a place where he can actually speak. And he's talking to them. And he's making friendships. And he's buying bread from this guy over here and asking him questions and getting to know his family and talking to him. And buying meat from this guy over here and talking to him. And then, like, have you met this guy over here? And he's connecting people and he's starting conversations. This, uh, we often think of him going to the marketplace kind of like this. Where he goes to the marketplace, he sets up a soapbox and he starts screaming. He starts yelling at people. But that's not, that's not really what this looked like. This looked a whole lot more subtle than that. This was Paul going to the marketplace and he walks into a, into a store. He gets to know the person behind the counter. And then he starts talking to the other people in the store. And he starts conversations. And these conversations grow as he continues to have them in line at the store or, or sitting down to eat. He finds people who have come there for lunch and he sits at their table. They're in a cafe kind of thing and he walks over and he sits down. That's, that's what this looks like. This is a personal engagement where he's walking around and getting to know people and there are people who are looking at him going, what's he talking about? Like he seems to be preaching foreign, de- foreign deities. Like we don't, we're not aware of who this guy is talking about. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. So he's in the marketplace. And this is how you know it wasn't him standing on a soapbox. Because they take him and they bring him to the Areopagus. Which is the place where you stand on a soapbox. So they bring him there. Saying, may we know that this new teaching you're teaching. Or may we know... What this new teaching that you are that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul shows up and he's got something new and fascinating. And so he shows up and he he starts talking to people about it and people start to get interested and they take him and they say, hey, look, we've got a place over here where philosophers stand up and preachers stand up and they come, you know, at whatever time of day and they stand up and they, they talk and they give a lecture. Can you come and give us a lecture about this? Because we're all fascinated. Like this is new. And they are shocked by the tada of the world. This is a group of people who are marveling at ta-da. Ta-da! That's what I mean by ta-da, right? Remember the rule. Truth trumps ta-da. Truth always trumps ta-da. If you have something that is true, it doesn't matter how amazing and fantastic the new thing is. The truth always trumps it. Now, what about when the truth is new? And that's what's going on here. The Athenians are going, what is this? We've never heard this before. Can you explain this to us? And so they have him stand up and they're fascinated by ta-da. Look at it. It says, they only like to spend their time listening to something new. We all know people like this. We all know people like this. If, if it's new, then ooh, they're all about it. Theological presuppositions that they learn that are new. Oh, they'll talk about those for months. They'll be super excited. of the time, you'll find out they don't know what they mean. They're just using the big word that they read in some book or heard some preacher use. But they they will cling to it and hold to it. Oh, this is new and exciting. Oh, how great it is. That's what the Athenians are doing. They're those types of people. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, I want you just for a minute to put yourself in Paul's shoes. These people have every idol under the sun. Literally, they have an altar just in case they missed one. These people believe everything. The Bereans, where he just came from, questioned everything, challenged everything, but did so respectfully. And as a result, came to the truth. These people, the Athenians, are grabbing hold of everything and trying desperately to stay afloat. And as a result, they have to jump from new thing to new thing to new thing to new thing. And Paul is looking at them going, Oh my, you have every single God that you could possibly think of and you don't know the real one. But just in case you missed, just in case you missed, you're, you're putting this out there to the unknown God. And he says, I saw you have this altar to an unknown God. And then he says, what, you, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul lays out a sermon. And this is a powerful and profound sermon. We get some very key theological doctrines played out here. First is that God is creator. I know that sounds like a simple doctrine. It's not. It's a very vast and complex doctrine. But God is creator. And in being creator, that means not only is he creator, but he's also sustainer. Because you can't create something and then just leave it. When you create something, it has to have interactivity with it. So creation gets made by God. He's the starter, but he's also the sustainer of creation. So we have first... Paul's statement to them is, number one, you are serving these unknown... I want to talk to you about the unknown God. And he says, first, he's the creator of all the world. He's the creator of all things and sustainer of all things. Then he says, he's what we call in theological circles, aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. 
I think. I probably spelled it wrong, but that's okay. It's a theological word. Somebody made it up at some point. So aseity means that God is entirely self-sufficient in himself. He is completely self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. He has all things and in every way is perfectly self-sufficient. That's the theological doctrine of aseity. And that means that he does not require you. He does not need you. God was not, let's get one thing straight. When God was in eternity with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he's, there, it's not like they played chess for a thousand years and were like, dude, we're bored. Let's make people. That's not what happened. It's not as if God got bored or that God was lonely. God wasn't lonely. He wasn't lonely. He didn't, he wasn't weeping because, oh, I miss people. No, he wasn't. That's not how God works. He's a saity. He's perfectly content, perfectly uh, self-sustaining. Everything is perfect within him. He has no need. Which makes it all the more powerful that he wants you. The fact that you bring nothing to the table for him. And he wants you. And longs for you. And wants you to know him. And Paul's looking at these people who are obsessed with their idols and trying to figure out every single way that they can live without any trouble. Like they're trying to figure out exactly how life will work. And, and he looks at them and he goes, this God needs nothing from you. Absolutely nothing. He's perfectly complete within himself. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the creator who gives you all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. There is only one race of people. You know that, right? Humanity is it. It's it. We are a race with vast uh, intricacies and uniquenesses among people. We are one race. There's one race. It's a human race. We're it. Everybody bleeds red. God made one humanity. He made all of us. He's the one that made every single dash and body type and mole and, and every single hair follicle and every type of hair losing. And he's the one that made the, the types of facial structures and the, and the designs. You know, there's a basic design of a face. Basic design of a face. According to artistic design, and, and if you go study art like I did, they will give you a basic design of a face. It's five eyes wide. Three noses deep. Five eyes wide, three noses deep. Now that's assuming you look perfectly straight and your proportions are perfect. Here's the problem with that. You start drawing portraits and you'll find out very quickly some people's eyes are different shapes on the same head. Some people's noses slightly askew. Not because of an accident. They're just made that way. Some people's cheekbones are a little wider than other people. Some people's eyebrows are a little bit heavier than others. Some people's foreheads, like mine, go back a little further. Some people's chins are huge. And some people have no chin. Some people have a very short distance between their top lip to, their, to the bottom of their nose. And some people have a massive gap there. And the more portraiture you begin to draw, the more you start to realize nobody's face actually is five eyes across and three nose widths down. But if you're going to draw, this is the standard. This is the idea. You have five eyes across, three noses down. And the nose is from the bridge of the eye to the bottom of the nose. You got it. You can do that with your hand and it's fun, you know, when you're looking 
you got this distance, right? And it covers top of the head to the bottom of the chin. Now, nobody's eyes, nobody's nose fits that. Think about the amazing God who made everybody's eyes and faces look weird. Because we do. We all look weird. We're just used to it, so we don't think we look weird. But we know we look weird because people put on makeup. Right? And men groom themselves and comb hair. Like, if we didn't look weird, we wouldn't change anything. But we do every morning. We're like, oh, this looks awful. Right? Because we know humanity is loaded with variety. And it is vast. And things are different. We, God did all that. He made all people that way. The self-sufficient one had fun and delighted and took pleasure in making your face the way it is. And I know that because your face is the way it is. And he's the one that was in charge of it. The self-sufficient one decided to intertwine himself with humanity because he loves, that's it, he loves. Verse 27, he not only does that, but he makes it into the heart of man that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. This is uh, Paul later on in the book of Romans is going to say that the invisible qualities of God are made known through nature. That that God has always been, always been speaking. He's always been present. You have always been able to see him. To see the things of God through creation. Which makes it all the more sad that people reject him. He's always been speaking. He's always been present. And here we see him saying in Acts 17 that God did this on purpose that humanity might feel their way towards him. I think it's interesting that he uses the term feel their way towards him as if blind people feeling their way to figure out who God is. He uses this term like there's a desperation in feeling to figure out who something is, to figure out somebody. There's a desperation here in this description that they would feel their way towards God. He says that they might feel their way towards him and find him. It's feeling their way towards him, knowing that there's a certain conclusion that he exists and will be found. If you seek the truth, you will find Jesus. If you seek the truth, you will find Jesus. That's why we at Sovereign Grace are not afraid of you reading books. Because if you seek the truth, and if we seek it together, we will find Jesus. Our authority is Scripture. Chief book. Chief authority over all other things. Authority is Scripture. So if we test all things by Scripture, we will find truth. We, the Spirit of God within us will discern and tell us what is true. We are not afraid to read or engage with this world. We read and we challenge and we engage. And then he says here that they might, God set this forward, that they might seek him and find him and in him. And then he says, but he's not far away from us there in verse 28. He goes on and says, in him, we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think ourselves, to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he directly attacks their idols. And then he goes on and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands that you repent. So he turns to the Athenians and he goes, the time for you to be ignorant and have this God of unknown origin that you're worshiping is over. Jesus Christ is Lord. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Now it's time to worship him. Now it's time to give your affection to him. 
No longer are you permitted to sit in ignorance. God has been patient and overlooked your wickedness and your ignorance of who he is. And then the result came. Some mocked him. Others said, we'll talk more. And then some joined him and believed. So with that understanding, flip back over to chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. He writes to them, I, I, we left... We, we sent Timothy, and, and he left us in Athens, and, and we, were, we were welcome to do that. Why? Because I had just engaged with the Athenians who were so much like the Thessalonians, who were engaged in idolatry, who were, who were seeking to worship anything. So much like them. And the Jews that he met there, I imagine, were so much like the Thessalonians. So similar. And he preaches, he, he's in the marketplace and he's, I mean, this, Paul seemed to really be getting along with people. He liked it. Like it was fun. He's going to the marketplace and having discussions with people. He's probably opened a tent shop and is making tents because that's what he did. Probably opened a tent shop and is making tents and is walking around selling his tent making skills. Hey, I can repair that tent, your shop tent. I can repair that for you. You know, you want me to, I got my stuff. I can, I can fix it up. And as he's doing it, he's talking to them and, and getting to know them. And he's having fun. And I imagine he's having coffee with the local professors. Right? Those are the Epicureans and the Stoics. He's having coffee with them. He's talking to various people. He's, he's doing things. And he's, he's around and he's in their midst. And, and he likes these people. He's enjoying them. And it's sparking what he remembers about the Thessalonians. It's sparking the memory of when he first met Jason and he's you know, probably in the marketplace in Thessalonica and he, he first meets Jason and Jason's like, what are you talking about this God who died and rose again? What are, you, what are you talking about that I can be free from sin and I don't have to worship this idol to lunch every day? What are you talking about that I don't have to wear this medal around my neck that keeps me safe from traveler's harms? What are you, what are you talking about? And he's... Paul's talking to him, and, and you can just feel, ah, oh, this is where he was. This is, this is just like them. This is just like them. And he, he starts talking to them, and he starts realizing, I wish I had told that to them. I wish I had talked to them about Epicureanism. I wish I had, I wish I had, oh, if only I'd had more time, and I didn't have to be torn away. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, it's, we were torn from you. And, and he's going, I wish I had more time. I wish I, could, I wish I could spend more time there. I wish I could talk with them more about this. Oh, man, I didn't cover that topic. And, oh, I forgot to talk about that. And what if, what if we were just reasoning and they're, they're going to slip back into worshiping everything else? What if, what if they're going to slip back into their old ways? And what if that guy that got freed from addiction slides back into addiction? And what if that, what if that, what if that woman who was suicidal was slides back into her suicidal depressions? And I don't even know. Is Jason capable of teaching the Bible? Is Jason even capable of it? I don't. What do? All those things would be rattling around in his head. And he's going, I can't bear this. I can't. Timothy, you got to go back there. You got to go back there. Leave me here. I'll argue with the Athenians. I'll, I'll handle this now. He sends his son. That's who Timothy is to Paul. He's his closest friend. He's his son. He's the boy. He's the one that that he raised up as a leader. He's the one with the same talents, the same skills, the same personality. He's that guy. He's, he's Paul 2.0. That's what Timothy is. He's Paul without the baggage 
of the Jewish history. He's, he's strong, he's smart, but he's also young and, and energetic and he loves people the same way Paul does. He's not like Barnabas who would gladly clash with Paul. He's not like Silas who wants to write everything down. He's Timothy. He wants to go have coffee with people. He wants to be in the marketplace. He wants to talk with people. He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. When we could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. He gets a large audience in Athens. He becomes overwhelmed and he sends Timothy back to the Thessalonians. And why? Because he wanted them to understand the things he couldn't teach them before. He wanted them to understand the things that he was missing or that he, that he had to cover now with the Athenians. He wanted them to understand these things. Why? Because it matters what you think about God. What you think about God matters. So he sends them back and he's got a couple things he tells us about why he sent Timothy back. First, to establish and exhort you in your faith. To establish means to set a firm foundation. It's, it's a very simple word. It means exactly what it sounds like it says. It, it means to give grounding or to give foundation to. And to exhort. To come alongside. To walk with. That's what exhort means. Exhort here, this word means literally to walk beside. To walk beside you. And, and that's what church is for. And that's what Christianity is for. We are to walk alongside each other, exhorting one another in the gospel so that we have strength with each other. What we proclaim to one another matters. What we proclaim to one another matters. We exhort one another. Go to Ephesians, or actually I'll just read it to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, Paul talks about what it means to exhort one another. So here's what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what is the will, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love to be around people who are like this. And you do too. Everybody loves to be around people who do these things. The guy that makes the most of every moment. You know who I'm talking about? The guy that's like, oh, I don't want to miss a thing. You know. And I'm not talking about morning people. Morning people don't count. Like that's not, they're morning people for like an hour and then they're grumpy like everybody else. There's the, the guy that wants to grab hold of life, though, and make something of it. That one. That's, I love being around that guy. He drives me to want to do more. To make the most of every moment of time. The one that is not interested in twaddle. In nonsense. But the one that wants to do and, and wants to make things. And, and wants to know God. And wants to, wants to be intimately involved with God. That one who's making the most of every moment. Because he knows that the time is against him. That one. That one. I want to be around that guy. And the guy that in verse 17 there is not foolish. But understands what the will of the Lord is. The one who knows what the will of the Lord is. And so he doesn't get drunk on wine and he's not into debauchery and he doesn't, he doesn't waste his time with garbage that, null, that nullifies the brain. You know what I'm talking about? Like we, we talk about getting, I mean, he's using the wine as an example here. It's not the only thing. It's not the only thing we waste our time on. But wine is an obvious one. 
getting drunk on alcohol is obviously wicked and debauchery. Getting drunk on the things of the world is equally wicked. It's just less obvious. So filling our minds with garbage that doesn't edify, uplift, or encourage. There's your test, by the way. What you're watching, what you're reading. Does it edify, does it uplift, and does it encourage you in any way towards Christ? You can argue that a lot of things do and can if you approach them with the right attitude. But let's be honest. Most of the things the world provides us to fill our minds with do not edify, uplift, and encourage our faith by any stretch of the imagination. We, again, are not afraid of what the world presents to us because the Spirit of God lives in us and we will be able to discern truth from fiction. We'll be able to discern right from wrong. And we live in a body of faith here at Sovereign Grace where we can talk about these things and we can engage in these things and we can ask. And you know, one of the things that ought to give you pause is when somebody you trust here at the church looks at you and you you start talking about something and they go, huh. They're being polite. When they go, huh. You ought to go, okay, wait, wait. What was that huh for? What am I missing? What am I missing? And they'll go, well. And then they'll talk and you'll talk about it and you'll get it out. That's part of living in the body, right? Verse 19 of Ephesians 5, addressing one another. So how do we exhort each other? We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart. There's great uh, commentaries on what psalms, hymns, spiritual songs are. I wrote one myself. It's on the back table if you want it. You can, you can dig all you want into that. It's, all I want to point out this morning is that there is a song written into the heart of Christians, a foundational song that we share that gets poured out here onto each other, metaphorically, but also in reality. We literally sing and talk about the Bible, and talk about hymns, and talk about Scripture, talk about the teaching that we learn through music. And it is good for you to share those things. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. And then look at this, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, not just for some things, but for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what Paul is sending Timothy back to do. He's sending Timothy back to be this. I love to be around that type of person. I want to be that type of person. I want to be the type of person that when I come to a town that I've been in before, people are excited to get coffee. And they're like, oh, I want to see John. Why? Because when I'm around John, I feel like i Get to see Jesus. That's what I want to be. And I want you to be that too. I want us to be that. And I don't care if there's only 10 of us in the room. If all 10 of us look more like Jesus, then we're winning. I think that this is magnificent and true. I want to be this type of person who exhorts people. We encourage one another and build one another up. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul continues this and says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says to love one another and outdo one another in showing honor. This is all part of exhorting. This is all part of exhorting each other. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Colossians 3, verse 16, how do you do that? You let the word of God dwell in you richly. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly. And then the second thing that he sent Timothy to do here is that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we were destined for this. 
No one would be moved by these afflictions. Trial and suffering come to test us. But look at what Paul says here. He says, one, we were destined for this. Two, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, three, for this reason, I could bear it no longer. And I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He writes to them and says, I don't want you to be moved by affliction. And he tells you three reasons why you shouldn't be moved by affliction. One, we all know it's coming. Suffering is a normal part of life. Suffering is something we deal with. Suffering is something sent to us that we might persevere, that perseverance would produce hope, and hope would not put to shame. And we would have proven character as a result of it. Suffering's coming. He warns us about it constantly in Scripture. Suffering is part of life. And if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have some suffering at some level at some time. How you deal with it is a mark of who you are. And Paul says, I sent them because I didn't want you to be moved by suffering. I didn't want you to be moved by our suffering. We are destined to have it. Second, we warned you about it. We warned you that you were going to suffer. We warned you that faith is not easy. Following Jesus is not an easy thing to do. It's worth it and it's true, but it's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to have the discipline to study your Bible every day, day in and day out, and maintain your workload and maintain affections with people and deal with difficult people. It is not easy to do. It is worth it. It's not easy. Paul writes and says, look, we warned you about it. We knew it was coming. We knew it was going to happen. And then he finishes by saying that third thing. We were worried that the tempter would come and tempt you and our labor would be in vain. That you'd be like these people in Athens that are coming to me and going, we'll talk more about this. Always talking more about this. Never doing anything. Always talking more. You know, the, you know these people. You know these people, always talking, never doing. You tell them the truth of the gospel and they want to talk about it. They don't want to do anything about it. You point out sin and they don't want to do anything about it. They're, oh, well, think about that. I, was, you know, I don't know if that's a real struggle. You point out direct scripture where it says things and they're like, well, we'll talk more about that. I'll think about that. And you're going, no, don't think. It's right there. Like, it's obvious. It says, do not murder, and you're stabbing people. Stop it. Like, cut it out. This, Paul's worried that they're going to be in vain, but he tells them, you knew suffering was coming. We warned you suffering was coming, and we were worried that you were going to falter and fail. So we sent Timothy that you might be encouraged. I hope that I am an encouragement and an exhortation to all in our midst. I hope that when, you, when people meet me, they feel exhorted and encouraged like Timothy, like Paul sending Timothy. I hope that when people meet you, they feel the same way. I know I do with you, just a way of affirming you. I know, I know that I do with you. I, I get the text. I get the prayers. I, I get the encouragement. I know that I feel that way with you, like our hearts are knit together simply because you come and we worship together. And I... And I know that we are together exhorting one another. And, but I, I want to be the type that not just encourages people and moves on, but exhorts them, that establishes them, and then exhorts them and walks with them and, and puts my life in theirs. Because that's what the word means, to walk with. I want to be the type that walks with people. And I just want to share a couple stories. One pastor across the country, guy I know, struggling, having great difficulty, emotional and personal difficulty. I'm not aware of it at all. Not aware of it. Don't, don't know anything about it. But because I know him, I, I call him up, I give him a phone call or I give him a text or something. 
And he responds, this, and I'm using generalities because this is more than one person. This is multiple people. But I sent him a text or something. Hey, man, praying for you, thinking about you. Hope you're doing okay. Here's a new artwork I just did. Here's what my church is doing this weekend. You know, let's charge the field. You know, depending on which person I write. You know, I usually use their words. If it's There's a certain guy that's like, let's charge the field. Like, that's the one. And so um, I'll write to him and... Or this other guy, and I'll, I'll write something just encouraging. And, and inevitably, what always happens, what always happens, the write back, you have no idea how timely that was when you sent that to me. You have no idea how timely that was. I've gotten to the point where I just respond, yes, I do. I know exactly how timely that was. It's God's timeliness. Right? But, they, but this is... You have no idea how much it means to other people when you exhort them by tying your life to them. By going, hey, here are my struggles. Here are the things I'm dealing with. What are you dealing with? Let's walk together. Let's do this together. You have no idea how powerful that is. And oh, that we would be a people who are like Timothy. Establishing and encouraging and exhorting other believers to the point where they want us to be around them. And they want to send us. And when there's somebody hurting over here, they go, I wish I could send John. I wish I could send, I wish I could send Sovereign Grace. I wish I could send their group over there. I wish like, that would be what we do. Oh, that we would be that kind of people who are so saturated with the love and grace of Jesus Christ that everyone would feel established and exhorted by us. Let's be that type of people. Because according to the Bible, we are and we can. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the joy of walking with you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to exemplify the same thing you do with us, that you intertwine your life with us and show us how to live and and give us life itself that you abide with us and we live with you in all things. Lord, be glorified in our midst. And as we come to communion together, remind us of your grace and mercy and presence among us. We love you. Amen.